This is History 2311, Week 12A, 2001 and After, Crises. reached the last week of our term and the last week of a history class, the final lectures of a history class, the final chapters of a history textbook, I won't say they're always the worst, but they are rarely the best lectures or the best chapters because uh, the whole point of history, one of the real reasons for doing it is the perspective that distance, that chronological historical distance gives you on events. And I know that the events of the first decade of the 21st century are history to most of you, but to me, uh, it still feels very early to have much historical perspective. I mean, we haven't even, we never really named the decade that I'm talking about today, the 2000s, the aughts, the O's, the zeros. That said, I do want to take our history, our story, at least one decade into the 21st century, up to events that may be living memory for those of you who are, you know, 18, 20, 22 years old. If we don't quite get to the present day, I want to at least get to where we can see it, where we can point towards it. So I ask myself, what events in the first decade of this century most directly point to our world in 2021? And I, I don't know if it's a comment on me or you know, being middle-aged or on life in the 2020s, but the big events that I thought of were largely all disasters. Uh, the attacks of September 11th, 2001, the so-called war on terror, which was really multiple wars, Hurricane Katrina, the 2008 financial crisis. These are four crises that really did and continue to shape our present day. Now that's not to say that these are the only key events, the only important events of the 21st century, far from it. And it's not to say that the 21st century has been all crises and calamities, but the first decade of this century, in that decade, the blithe confidence of the United States in the 1990s was really rocked by all of these events and, and the structures and the certainties of the 20th century, the American century seem to be 
crumbling. These were these were major body blows that America took in these years. Some of them self-inflicted to be sure, and some of them from outside. So I'm gonna focus on these crises without claiming that they are the whole story. They also set up some of the themes or narratives that I'm going to try to sketch out in my final lecture later this week. This cartoon from September, 2002, What a Difference a Day Makes, uh, so it might be kind of racist, this depiction of bin Laden as a vulture, but the cartoon does capture the sense of rupture that Americans and others felt after September 11th, 2001. It isn't really true that the world passed in one day from a sunny paradise where Wall Street was just throwing out money to a frightening war-torn dystopia, but it sometimes felt like that. As I'm sure you know, on September 11th, 2001, 19 young men trained by the terrorist group Al-Qaeda hijacked four commercial airplanes and used those planes as weapons to bring down both towers of the 110-story World Trade Center, smash one side of the Pentagon, and kill about 3,000 people. People still argue about whether U.S. intelligence could have or should have predicted the September 11th attacks. The 9-11 Commission ultimately produced a 500-page report on basically just that subject. But it's fair to say that ordinary Americans really did experience 9-11 as something completely unexpected, as an attack that literally came out of the clear blue sky. That's how it was experienced. But of course, everything has a history. There is always a backstory or backstories to be told. And the backstory of the 9-11 attacks, of course, lies in the Middle East. Now I'm generalizing here, but if you go back to the 1970s, most Middle Eastern nations then were secular regimes, autocratic to be sure, non-democratic, but also not theocratic. Some of them were backed by the United States, like Iran under the Shah, the old monarchy of Iran. Some of them were backed uh, by the Soviets, like Iraq in these days. But the Cold War context really doesn't explain the issues that were bubbling up in this region. And in fact, the fact that both superpowers, both the United States and the Soviets, viewed this region only through a Cold War framework is probably part of why both superpowers failed to see what was coming, failed to see the writing on the wall. Now on this map, you can see all the oil fields around the Persian Gulf. That's the body of water between Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, and Saudi Arabia. And the Persian Gulf region actually contains something like 40% of the world's oil. The rising oil prices in the 1970s brought a flood of wealth into the oil producing states of the Middle East. But that money largely went into the pockets of the rulers of these states and not the people. This led to more and more popular unrest of various kinds in each of these countries, which often took the form, especially among poor young men, of religious radicalization. The Iranian revolution in 1979 overthrew the American-backed Shah and swept a fundamentalist theocracy to power under the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini. And this revolution really caught both superpowers by surprise because it didn't fit the bipolar Cold War framework. Khomeini and the revolution were not tools of the Soviet Union and they were not tools of the United States. And both superpowers responded to this upheaval in fateful ways. 
the United States shifted its support in the region from Iran to Iraq, to the regime of Saddam Hussein, who also came to power uh, in Iraq in 1979. And the US uh, supported Hussein with billions of dollars of economic aid and sale of weapons over the course of the long, bloody Iran-Iraq war, which stretched from 1980 into 1988. At the same time, the Soviets, fearing that something like the Iranian Revolution would happen in Afghanistan, backed a coup there by Afghan communists. And when that failed, the Soviets invaded Afghanistan in December 1979. And for the next decade, the Soviets fought a losing war there against Afghan resistance. It was sort of like the Soviets' Vietnam. And that war was a rallying point and a training ground for fundamentalist militants from across the Middle East. They called themselves the Mujahideen, or those engaged in jihad or holy warriors. Muslim men from around the region came to Afghanistan to join in this fight against the Soviet invader. In the U.S. were strong supporters of the Mujahideen against the Soviets. Uh, the U.S. government and especially the CIA sent millions of dollars in weapons and aid to the insurgents fighting the Soviets and their puppet government in Afghanistan. Here is President Reagan meeting with Afghan freedom fighters in the White House in 1982. Among those men, the men fighting, not the men in the picture with Reagan, among those men was Osama bin Laden, the son of a Saudi billionaire. Bin Laden established a financial network which funneled arms and money from Saudi Arabia and the United States to the Mujahideen fighting in Afghanistan. When the Soviets finally gave up and withdrew from Afghanistan in 1988, bin Laden returned to Saudi Arabia but maintained his organization, which he now called Al-Qaeda or the base. What turned bin Laden and Al-Qaeda against the United States was the Persian Gulf War, which followed the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait in 1990. Saddam Hussein's Iraq invaded the tiny but oil-rich nation of Kuwait. The United States sent 200,000 troops to Saudi Arabia to block any further advance and forged a broad international coalition to free Kuwait. In January 1991, a US-led force drove the Iraqi army out of Kuwait after just 100 hours of fighting. Now, it was not fighting Iraq that angered bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. Bin Laden had no love for Saddam Hussein's regime. What turned bin Laden and Al-Qaeda against the United States was the presence of US troops in Saudi Arabia, bin Laden's home, and also the site of Mecca, the Holy Land for Muslims. The story I've heard, I don't know if it's true, but one story I've heard is that the specific thing that set him off was the site of littering around US Army bases, and in particular, uh, all the plastic water bottles lying in the sand. I have no idea if that is really true, but there's just something sort of poetic, both poetic and banal about that image and the idea that that was the origin of the September 11th attacks and everything that has followed. What is there to say about September 11th itself? On the morning of September 11th, 19 hijackers armed with nothing more than box cutters and pepper spray captured four planes, each one loaded with passengers and also loaded with fuel for a transcontinental flight. 
and turned those planes into giant missiles. Just a little before nine, the hijackers flew their first plane into the North Tower of the World Trade Center, naturally killing themselves and everybody on board. 17 minutes later, second plane crashed into the South Tower. Around this time, hundreds of firefighters and police officers rushed into the burning towers, tending to the injured and helping thousands of workers escape. Around 9.30, the third plane crashed into the Pentagon in Washington. Passengers on the fourth plane, United 93, got news of the previous attacks over their cell phones and struck back against the hijackers. We'll never know exactly what happened on the plane, but at 10.02 a.m., that plane crashed in a field in rural Pennsylvania, killing everybody on board. Just before 10 a.m., the North Tower, weakened by the impact of the plane and then the fire, collapsed. The second tower collapsed about half an hour later. Altogether, just under 3,000 people were killed in these attacks. The 9-11 attacks were heinous, they were unjustified, they were crimes against humanity. But they were also, for reasons I've tried to explain, blowback from the exercise of US power in the world. This is not to defend the attacks, only to explain the obvious symbolism. Al-Qaeda struck at the World Trade Center, which is the symbol of, or a symbol of US financial power and it struck at the Pentagon, symbol of US military power around the world. Because in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of militant Afghans and Saudis, certainly these two things were not separate. American military power and American economic power, the twin pillars of the American century. The president on September 11th, 2001 was of course, George W. Bush. When he ran for office in 2000, Bush had called for a more humble foreign policy, but 9-11 would turn him into a militant Wilsonian. As much as any president before him, Bush embraced the language of Woodrow Wilson, of American exceptionalism, of the United States having a God-given mission in the world. Bush's first remark after hearing of the second plane attack was, we are at war. But who was the United States at war with? The answer that Bush and his government soon settled on was a war on terror. By the evening of September 11th, George Bush had declared a war on terror, like so many presidents before him, a war for freedom, a war to end war, a fight that the United States did not start, but by God, it would end. In retrospect, we can see that the idea of a war on terror is dangerously vague. How do you win a war on terror? How do you know when it's over? How can you prevent it from metastasizing into conflicts all over the world? But in the shock and fear and rage of that moment, few people were thinking that far ahead. The idea of a global war on terror was encouraged, possibly even engineered, by Bush's vice president, Dick Cheney. Cheney had been secretary of defense under the first president Bush, George W. Bush's father, uh, before that, he was a congressman and he was White House Chief of Staff uh, under Gerald Ford back in the 70s. Cheney had always championed a very militant interventionist vision for the United States around the world. Uh, back in 1991, at the time of the Gulf War, Cheney drafted a policy document that said, 
the United States is now the only superpower now that the Cold War is over. And the goal of US policy should be to stop any other country from reaching a position that would ever allow it to challenge the United States. People colloquially called this the Cheney Doctrine. Also in 1991, Cheney had argued that George Bush, the first President Bush, should invade Iraq and topple Saddam Hussein. George Bush Sr. rejected this plan. The United States went to war to liberate Kuwait from the Iraqis, to push Iraq out of Kuwait. But once that was done, the war was over. But 10 years later, the Cheney Doctrine and Cheney himself provided the bearings for a president and a country in shock from the 9-11 attacks. George Bush Jr. naturally looked to his older vice president, his vice president with experience in foreign affairs, for guidance after 9-11, and Cheney took the opportunity to finish what he saw as the unfinished work of the first Gulf War. This phrase, the war on terror, was a way of combining multiple conflicts into one rhetorical struggle in Afghanistan, in Iraq, and indeed elsewhere. The first of these wars was against Al-Qaeda's operational home in Afghanistan. In October 2001, American and British jets began bombing Afghanistan, targeting strongholds of Al-Qaeda and the Taliban. The Taliban was the religious government that had taken power there after the retreat of the Soviets. Before the year was out, the United States had invaded Afghanistan and toppled the Taliban but the Taliban insurgency would continue. In fact, it continues to this day. U.S. troop levels have gone down under Obama, under Trump, and again under Biden, but U.S. forces are still there fighting in Afghanistan today, which makes this the longest war in American history. The second war or second front in the war on terror was against Iraq. Immediately after 9-11, Cheney demanded any shred of evidence implicating Iraq in the attacks. There was no such evidence because Iraq was not involved in the attacks, but that didn't stop the administration from pressing harder and harder for war and from cooking the intelligence on Saddam Hussein's weapons program, ultimately convincing the majority of Americans that Iraq was indeed responsible for 9-11. The United States invaded Iraq in March 2003. Baghdad and Saddam Hussein's regime fell after about three weeks of fighting. But despite the infamous mission accomplished banner that Bush flew in May of that year, the hard part came after toppling Hussein. With the fall of the Taliban in Afghanistan and then of Hussein in Iraq, US forces shifted from war at which they were superb to nation building, which they have historically not been good at. And the Pentagon had done very little planning as to what to do in Afghanistan or Iraq after toppling their governments. In Iraq, they dismantled the army, they dismantled the police force, they dismantled the whole government bureaucracy, and then found themselves without any way of maintaining order. U.S. planners had imagined that they would be met with joyous crowds, hailing them like liberators, like in France after World War II, and that democracy and free markets would swiftly and naturally take root in Iraq. But instead, they faced a hostile population and a well-organized insurgency that ultimately grew into a full-scale civil war between the Sunni and Shia populations of Iraq. 
Estimates of the number of Iraqis who have died in the war since 2003 range from 150,000 to a quarter of a million, with several hundred thousand more dying from indirect effects of the war, like starvation and disease, and more than a million fleeing the country. In 2004, the leading Iraqi jihadist group pledged allegiance to Osama bin Laden's Al-Qaeda and changed its name to Al-Qaeda in Iraq, retroactively creating a link between Al-Qaeda and Iraq, the very thing that had not existed before. In 2006, this group joined with six smaller groups to form the so-called Islamic State of Iraq, ISI, the forerunner of today's ISIS. And in the years that followed, the internal conflict within Iraq overflowed that nation's boundaries, destabilizing Syria and miring it in its own decade-long civil war and triggering a refugee crisis across the Middle East, across Europe and the world. George Bush declared mission accomplished in May 2003, but U.S. troops remained mired in Iraq until 2011 and then returned in 2014. A smaller force is still there now conducting operations against ISIS. And as I said, the war in Afghanistan also continues. You can enlist in the U.S. Army at age 17, which means that there are American soldiers fighting in these wars who were not born when they began. The wars in Iraq and Afghanistan have cost the United States billions of dollars. They've cost thousands of American lives. They've cost thousands of allied lives and hundreds of thousands of Iraqi and Afghan lives. But they've also done immense damage to American prestige, to American interests in the Middle East, to the pretense of American virtue. They've destabilized the region. They've created new threats for America and the world. It's hard to argue that the war on terror has not been one of the great catastrophes of this century. Of the crises we are discussing today, Hurricane Katrina is the only one you could call a natural disaster. But in fact, Katrina shows that the line between natural disasters and man-made disasters is actually hard to draw. The summer of 2005 was a record summer for hurricanes. It's since been surpassed. I think the record year is 2017. But hurricanes are getting worse on average. Global warming means warmer ocean temperatures, which intensifies the frequency and, and the intensity of tropical storms and hurricanes. In August 2005, a Category 5 hurricane, which is the largest, highest category on the hurricane scale, struck the Gulf Coast of Florida and Louisiana near New Orleans. The city of New Orleans is situated below sea level, which means that it has always been vulnerable to flooding, and it's kind of dependent on a whole system of dams and levees. Levees are like embankments built to prevent the overflow of a river. For years, engineers, city engineers predicted a catastrophe if a hurricane ever hit the city. But requests to strengthen the levee system were ignored by the federal government, and the state and city governments could not afford their own repairs. So the infrastructure had been crumbling for decades, especially in the poorest parts of the city. When Katrina hit on August 29th, the levees broke and nearly the entire city with a population of a half million people was flooded. Now you can debate whether Katrina was a natural or a man-made disaster, but the government's response certainly made the crisis worse. The city government was very slow to order an evacuation because they didn't want to hurt tourism. 
when they finally did tell residents to leave, they made no plans for the thousands of city residents who did not have cars and who were too poor to find other transportation. The Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, which is a federal agency responsible for disaster relief, was already in disarray before Katrina struck. After 9-11, FEMA had been folded into the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, its budget got cut, but also disaster relief sort of took second place to counterterrorism efforts. Hurricane Katrina and the flooding that followed killed more than 1,800 people and destroyed something like 160,000 homes. For days, thousands of people, most of them poor, most of them black, were stranded in the flooded city, marooned on their own rooftops. People died in hospitals and nursing homes. There were bodies floating in the streets. More than 20,000 people ended up crowded in a makeshift refugee camp at the New Orleans Superdome. No, this picture is actually of the Astrodome in Houston, where they moved a lot of the refugees to. Two full days after the hurricane struck, there was still exactly only one FEMA official on the ground in New Orleans. He sent an urgent message to his boss, Michael Brown, that the Superdome was out of food and water, that the situation was past critical. Brown, who had no experience in disaster management, sent an infamous text message back, which read, thanks for the update. Anything I need to do or tweak? In the end, it took FEMA five days to get food and water to the Superdome. Meanwhile, President Bush said nothing about the disaster until four days after the storm hit, when he infamously praised Michael Brown for doing a heck of a job. Individual Americans responded heroically to Katrina, just as they had to 9-11. People with boats rescued thousands from rooftops and attics, and states like Texas opened their cities and their homes to thousands of refugees. But the government response really was a failure on almost every level. Private enterprise was also active and considerably more effective, it seems. While the government response to Katrina was barely getting off the ground, Walmart was delivering truckloads of supplies, including water, food, and prescription drugs to the city. Walmart is the largest private sector employer in the United States. By some measures, it is the world's largest corporation. It's also notorious for pay and labor violations, for poor pay, for cutthroat competition and, and, and anti-labor practices. But it got a whole lot of good publicity for its $15 million in Katrina relief. Walmart's response and the way it showed up the government was great advertising, not just for Walmart, but for people who believe that for-profit corporations should be allowed to take over the traditional tasks of government. In the aftermath of Katrina, the Bush administration decided to turn New Orleans into a model of privatization. They created a, quote, Gulf Coast Opportunity Zone in which environmental regulations, safety regulations, minimum wages for government projects, all these things were suspended or relaxed. And private contractors, uh, military contractors like Halliburton and Blackwater, the same construction and security companies that made billions of dollars uh, botching the reconstruction of Iraq, now descended on New Orleans and snaffled up billions more dollars in contracts to rebuild the city. That rebuilding made these contractors very rich. It also changed the face of New Orleans. Instead of rebuilding public housing, they set up temporary trailer parks, then gave tax incentives for the private sector to develop real estate. 
instead of replacing low income housing, these developers have tended to build expensive condos and hotels. Instead of rebuilding schools, they turned most of education over to the private sector. Today, only one in 10 children in New Orleans still go to public school. The rest go to private or charter schools. New Orleans today is considerably smaller, whiter and wealthier than pre-Katrina New Orleans. A lot of poor black folks just didn't or couldn't go back. So what is the legacy of Katrina and how does it point towards America today? In the short term, uh, the hurricane damaged the legitimacy of the Bush government. It certainly sharpened uh, the sense that the Republican Party had little to say to and little care for African-Americans. In the longer term, Katrina gives us a look at what future climate change disasters are probably going to look like. The costs of climate change are going to hit us without warning at irregular intervals, and they're going to fall disproportionately on the poor, on the South, and on people of color. They're also going to expose all the flaws and fault lines in our governments, in our infrastructure, and in how much or how little we care for one another. Hurricane Maria struck Puerto Rico in September 2017. It was another Category 5 hurricane. The death toll was actually twice that of Katrina and the property damage nearly as high. President Trump blocked money for rebuilding Puerto Rico. He repeatedly complained that the United States shouldn't have to spend money on disaster relief there, which to be clear, Puerto Rico is a US territory. Trump also told the flood victims in the Midwest that they couldn't get disaster relief because Puerto Rico had taken too much money. So these problems that Katrina pointed to clearly are yet to be solved. The fourth crisis of the decade is maybe the hardest to talk about or the hardest to get perspective on. It's certainly the hardest to find images of for slides. And that is the financial crisis of 2008. The financial crisis of 2008 was the worst financial panic since the crash of 1929 and the Great Depression of the 1930s. We're still living through its economic aftermath. Its roots came from the fiscalization of the economy, the massive profits in the financial sector in the 1990s that I talked about last week. In the 1980s and 90s, financial flows, the movement of money between banks and other financial institutions all around the world, grew out of all proportion to any actual industrial production or trade or anything else. In the early 2000s, the Federal Reserve Bank was keeping interest rates at historically low levels. They did this in order to first to help the economy recover from the dot-com crash in 2000, and then just to encourage Americans to borrow money, especially to purchase homes. When interest rates are low, it is easier to borrow money, it is easier to buy a house. The result of this was after the dot-com crash, money moved from the high-tech sector into real estate and housing prices, which were already high, shot up and up. This happened in all parts of the country, but it was most dramatic in Sunbelt states like Arizona and Florida. In Florida in 2005, houses were being bought one day and then sold the very next day for like 50% more. Low interest rates uh, attracted first-time home buyers, while those who already owned homes rushed to refinance their mortgages at lower rates. 
People also took out home equity loans. These are loans that you borrow using your house as collateral to make home improvements, to pay for the skyrocketing price of college tuition, uh, to cover major healthcare expenses. Basically, as wages stayed flat and the cost of living increased, more and more Americans were using debt and leveraging their homes to stay afloat. After the crash, as happens after every crash, there was a lot of moralizing, a lot of blaming irresponsible borrowers. But the blame here really lies on irresponsible lenders. Banks and other institutions took advantage of decades of deregulation. They issued more and more of what are called subprime mortgages, that is, riskier mortgages, risky loans to people who couldn't afford their monthly payments. Many of these lenders specifically targeted minorities who had, for much of the century, been unable to get mortgages or loans for homes. A 2006 study showed that more than a quarter of all housing loans nationwide were what were considered predatory high interest loans, and that included 49% of loans to African Americans and 39% of loans to Hispanics. Wall Street banks also developed complex new ways of repackaging and selling mortgage-based securities to investors. Basically, these were ways of spreading or sharing the risk from risky loans and then taking on still more risk. Insurance companies like AIG, the world's largest insurance company, sold credit default swaps. These were insurance policies that would pay out if a borrower failed to pay back a loan. So that's another way of mitigating against risk and banks and investment firms willing to take these risks reported billions of dollars in new profits. The real estate boom leveled off in 2006. It might have even started in late 2005. It wasn't a sudden crash like Black Friday in 1929, at least not at first. Florida realtors just started noticing that their phones were ringing a little bit less than the week before. Home prices had risen so high that sales finally started to plateau. And by this point, a huge number of Americans owed more on their mortgages than their homes were really worth. When increasing numbers of people started to default, that is, they couldn't make their monthly mortgage payments, there were a wave of foreclosures as banks took back the homes that people had bought. But when they did that, housing prices started to drop and the banks found themselves with billions of dollars of worthless investments on their books. By 2008, this slowdown became a free fall. Banks stopped making loans and the stock market collapsed. More than a million homes were lost to foreclosures and $7 trillion in shareholder wealth was wiped out. The investment house Lehman Brothers recorded a $2.3 billion loss and went out of existence, which was history's largest bankruptcy. AIG, the insurance company AIG, would have been the biggest bankruptcy in history, but in September 2008, the Federal Reserve gave AIG $85 billion to prevent it from going bankrupt. In November 2008, the Federal Reserve used $800 billion to buy up mortgage debt to save America's banks but the crisis rolled on. In the middle of this crash, with the stock market posting record losses week after week and millions of Americans losing their homes, their jobs, and their retirement savings, Americans elected Barack Obama to be the next president of the United States. As the first African-American president, Obama's election was transformative. It was revolutionary, but Obama himself was not a radical. 
he ran as a reconciler, a uniter, as someone who could bring a divided country back together. In the speech that first made him a national figure at the Democratic National Convention in 2004, Obama said, there's not a liberal America and a conservative America. There's not a red America and a blue America. There's not a white America and a black America. There's just the United States of America. Memories of 1933 and the banking crisis of that year were on everybody's mind in 2008. And upon being elected, Obama was widely compared to Franklin Roosevelt. People hoped for a transformative presidency, for a new New Deal to reform the financial system that had betrayed Americans so badly. But faced with an intense Republican opposition and also divisions within his own party, Obama found his policy options were much more limited than Roosevelt's. And he himself was fundamentally a cautious guy. He never wanted to engage in the kind of messy deal-making and horse trading that someone like Lyndon Johnson used to ram controversial legislation through a reluctant Congress. Obama appointed a so-called dream team of economic advisors, uh, the best and the brightest, but they all came from the world of high finance. The head of Obama's National Economic Council was economist Larry Summers, a hedge fund manager who had played a crucial role in deregulating the federal sector as Clinton's Secretary of the Treasury. Obama's Treasury Secretary, Timothy Geithner, had run the New York Federal Reserve and also had very close ties to major banks and financiers. Now, these were smart, respected men. They were not crooks, but they were Wall Street bankers. And their responses to the financial crisis were very gentle to Wall Street. Summers and Geithner's first priority was to bail out the banks and financial institutions. They also rejected any calls for the prosecution of those who had arguably caused this collapse. In early 2009, Obama got Congress to pass an $800 billion stimulus bill to fund infrastructure projects, education, public works, job creation, kind of imitation of the New Deal. But Republicans fought the Obama administration on nearly every aspect of federal spending. In 2010, uh, Republicans in Congress staged the first of many showdowns with Obama over raising the federal debt ceiling, something that prior presidents had done routinely with little political controversy. In the Obama years, this provoked a showdown every single time. Obama ended up reaching out to Congress and accepting a compromise that's in quotes, that incorporated almost all the Republican demands for dramatic cuts in federal spending while not increasing taxes, even on the wealthiest Americans. There's a, a case to be made, a strong case to be made, and leading economists have made it, that more sustained intervention in the economy was necessary to recover from the crash. More Keynesian spending on public works and job creation, similar to the New Deal and World War II. But after 30 years of austerity and neoliberalism and deficit reduction policies, under Democrats and Republicans alike, it seemed impossible in the Obama years to muster the political will for that kind of dramatic intervention. Of course, there are other stories to be told about the 2000s and the 2010s. The anger and disillusionment of the 2008 financial crisis fed directly into the right-wing populism of the Tea Party movement, which challenged and arguably seized control of the Republican Party between 2009 and 2012. The Tea Party movement was, on its surface, 
all about cutting taxes and shrinking government, especially opposing Obama's stimulus package and plans for government-sponsored health care. But you didn't have to look far beneath the surface to see that the Tea Party, or at least elements of the Tea Party, were also expressing white grievance and a kind of racist rage against America's first black president. And nobody understood that rage better, felt it more keenly, or exploited it more effectively than the man who would replace Obama and who spent these years stoking the conspiracy theory, the lie that Obama was not really American. On the other end of the political spectrum, the financial crisis also led directly to the Occupy movement of 2011-2012. Occupy Wall Street protests were originally launched by a Canadian magazine called Adbusters. Protests soon grew and grew, and thousands camped out on Wall Street and similar encampments sprang up in cities around the country and the world. The media and the establishment were always frustrated by Occupy's refusal to articulate specific demands. But the core message of Occupy was actually pretty clear. We are the 99%. It was a populist assertion of class solidarity between all but the very rich. The Occupy protests ended, as all protests do, and when they did, it wasn't clear that Occupy had achieved very much. But that language, we are the 99%, the 1% and the 99%, did enter the political vocabulary. And with it, the idea that there must be alternatives to the neoliberal free market order. And I would draw a straight line from Occupy to the Bernie Sanders campaigns of 2016 and 2020, and to the energy and momentum of young democratic socialists today. It has been, I think it's fair to say, a tough century so far, a tough century for the United States, a tough century for the world. The song I played at the top was by Randy Newman, not exactly a huge, huge hit, but I just think it's a very clever, very funny song. And if you only know Randy Newman from the Toy Story soundtrack, you're missing out on a long career of very sharp, funny, satirical songs, often about US history topics. In the song I played at the top, Newman says, the end of an empire is messy at best, this empire's ending like all of the rest. And that might be true, but every century is a tough one and every action provokes a reaction. And as Rebecca Solnit once said, history is not like checkers, it's like the weather, that is to say, it's not black and white, there's more than two sides. It is an extremely complex system filled with surprises and unintended consequences. A butterfly flapping its wings on one side of the world may produce a hurricane on the other. It may also produce a rainbow or a revolution. Is the American century ending? Is the American empire ending? I won't pretend to know how the future is going to unfold. But thanks very much for watching. President once said, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Now we're supposed to be afraid. It's patriotic, in fact, color-coded. What we're supposed to be afraid of? Why being afraid? That's what terror means, doesn't it? That's what it used to mean. You know, it pisses me off a little this Supreme Court's gonna outlive me. A couple of young Italian fellas and a brother on the court now, too. But I defy you, anywhere in the world, to find me two Italians as tight ass as the two Italians we get. 
And as for the brother, well, Pluto's not a planet anymore either. The end of an empire. Messy at best. This empire's ended. Like all the rest. At the Spanish Armada. Drift on the sea. We drift in the land of the brave. The home of the free. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.